All right. Good morning, church. That is Wonka. Uh, and so glad to have you here this morning. My name is Paul, and I'm the teaching pastor here, uh, which is uh, just the highlight of my week, I think, pretty much every week to get to be able to do this. And so, so grateful uh, for the opportunity to be here. If you are a guest, uh, welcome. Really thankful that you've chosen to check things out uh, this morning. This is the last week of Now Playing. And so if you come back next week expecting more popcorn and candy, you won't be here. So, so sorry. Uh, savor it while you can, all right? Uh, don't grab a bag full on your way out, though, unless there's extra popcorn, all right? Um, we won't give away expired candy next year, so maybe you should. Uh, anyway, uh, so thankful you've chosen to check things out uh, today, again, in this last uh, uh, week of the Now Playing series. And so um, this movie is, is very entertaining. I will say that. It is the third installment uh, in this Wonka world of films. Uh, the Willy Wonka world is, is pretty absurd. Uh, again, it is entertaining. The original film came out in 1971, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There was a second edition or remake of that, I think in 2003, uh, with Johnny Depp playing Willy Wonka. Uh, this is not a remake. Uh, this is original uh, in the sense that it's a new and original story in the Willy Wonka world, and it's very much an origin story. How did he get his start? How did he begin doing all the things that he began to do? Uh, and that's what it is. And it is, again, sort of an absurd story. Uh, he shows up in this city, uh, and in this city, it's really the, the hub of the chocolate world, and there are three businesses uh, run by three guys known as the Chocolate Cartel uh, because they destroy anyone and everyone trying to sell chocolate in their city. And so when Wonka shows up and he's sort of this mysterious, magical man and his chocolate is amazing, he is public enemy number one to the chocolate cartel. And so the whole movie is sort of this dynamic between them trying to kill him, actually, and him trying to sell his chocolate. Uh, along the way, uh, he accidentally sells himself into slavery, and you might ask, well, how does one do that? And so he has no money at the beginning of the movie. He goes to this inn, and the innkeeper says, oh, don't worry about it, it's just... It's just like a dollar for a night. He's like, well, can I pay tomorrow because I don't have, even have a dollar? She's like, sure. Just sign the letter. And somebody sort of warns him. The little girl, her name is Noodle. She's the sort of secondary primary character. And she's like, read the fine print. And so he tugs on the paper and it backs out. And it's like, you know, 10 feet long of, of fine print. And, and it turns out he can't read. Uh, and so he just signs it. Uh, but what he didn't realize is there are a lot of upcharges. And so, you know, there's the stair charge and the light charge and all sorts of things. And so he's in debt like 10 grand. The rest of the movie then, too much detail, is him trying to get out of this debt, free the other ones that are enslaved, and defeat the chocolate cartel. A lot of ridiculous things happens. Uh, ridiculous things happen. At one point, he milks a giraffe, which is just sort of comical. Uh, and so, again, just an absurd movie. But there is some depth. There is some depth. The, the why behind Wonka's selling of chocolate. Why does he do it? And it's not really just to sell a boatload of chocolate, or in his case, a factory load of chocolate. That's not really the why. His why stems very much uh, from a, a conversation with his mother. Right? Uh, it's clear that as a little boy, he and his mother had a very, very close relationship. And it's also clear that his mother is no longer present. She has died. Something horrible has happened because it's probably a Disney movie and that's what always happens in Disney movies. But anyway, uh, he's not with his mom, but he wants to be with his mom. And there's a moment in the film where he has a flashback. And in this flashback, we sort of get this sort of motivating why uh, behind Wonka. Again, it's, it's not really about just making a bunch of money. It's about much more. In this flashback, he's a little boy. His mom is there. 
They live on a riverboat, which is just sort of cool. It's clear they don't have much. Seems like really each other is all they have. And she says this to him, every good thing in this world started with a dream. And when you do share your chocolate with the world, I'll be right there beside you. Now, Willie responds, the little boy says, you promise? And she says, I pinky promise. And so it seems to be, hey, when you share chocolate with the world, I'm going to be with you. And again, somewhere along the line, she dies. She is not with him. And so what Willie genuinely believes is that when I share chocolate with the world, I'm not sure how it's going to work. I don't know why it works, but I believe my mom is going to be with me. And so everything is focused on, I want to share it with the world so that my mom will be with me. And there's this one moment about midway through the film where he begins to share chocolate with the world. He gets a storefront, and they open the storefront, the whole city floods it, and and people are eating the chocolate, and it's amazing, and it's like, this is it. He has arrived, but the chocolate cartel sabotaged him. And they poison the chocolate, and people grow like crazy, cool green mustaches, and, and it's chaos, and then the building burns down somehow, sheer chaos, and he sort of sits in the ashes of his dreams, and he's weeping, And the reason for that, Noodle, who's the secondary primary character, the little girl, she really asks, well, why? And he he says, that's why I'm here, Noodle, talking about the promise of his mom, so I can feel the same way I did back then, eating chocolate with her. My mom promised that when I shared chocolate with the world, she'd be right there beside me. I know it sounds crazy, but I always hoped somehow she'd keep that promise. And then when Wonka shares chocolate with the city for this moment and she doesn't show up, What Wonka essentially says is she didn't make good on her promise. And it's devastating. I thought she would be here. I thought she would be with me. I thought she would be present when I did this thing, and she's not. I'm let down. I'm sad. I'm brokenhearted. And that began to get me thinking about you and I, we have received in Christ a promise. We've received lots of promises, to be clear. But there's one promise we have received that reminds me of the promise that he received from his mother. Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 20 says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. He commissions his disciples before he ascends into into heaven. He says, I will be with you. I'm right here beside you. I'm with you all the way. And yet, aren't there times in our lives where we ask, God, where are you? I don't feel your presence. You promised you'd be with me. Did you lie, God? Let's just be honest with ourselves. Sometimes I think it's, can ask the questions that maybe we're fearful to ask. God, is it really true that you're with me because in my anxiety or in my depression or whatever it may be, I don't feel your presence, God, and I'm scared. Maybe some of us, we struggle with addiction and what we think to ourselves is, God, how could you be with someone like me who struggles with this thing? Maybe for others of us, we've received a diagnosis or whatever it may be, and you say, God, I thought you would be with me, and now I'm receiving this thing, and I don't feel comforted, I don't feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Are you really with me? Where are you, God? Maybe we're navigating difficult relationships, hard, painful relationships, and we think to ourselves, God, if you were with me, I would know what to do, and I would know what to say, but I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, and if I say anything, I feel like I mess it up. God, are you really with me? Or was it not true? And so what we're doing this morning, church, is what I want to ask is really this driving question. Is God really with us? Is God really with us? Is his promise true? 
And to answer that question, we're going to go in several different places. But I I first really want to, to look at, is God faithful to keep his promises? Because if God is faithful to keep his promises, then we know that the promise that Jesus would be with us is true. And then it's the other question of, well, how do we go about experiencing that? And so first things first, can we trust the promises of God? We're about to go into a bunch of different texts. I'm going to pray for us because we always need help. And then we're going to get into, get into the word. Father, we trust you this morning and we love you and we need you. I ask, Lord, that you would open your word to us. You promise that it's living and active. And so we need it to be living and active to us. That it would shape us and transform us and help us see who you are. Because we were created to be with you, God. Sin has destroyed that, and yet you have made a way through Christ to be with you. And so we cling to that, and we ask that as we ask difficult questions about why we don't experience your presence, and as we ask difficult questions about are your promises really true, would you lead us, glorify yourself in our midst? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, this first question, is God really with us, or really it's are God's promises trustworthy and true? And there's a lot of different ways that we could answer that question. The way that I want to answer it is really by looking at the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in the prophecies about Jesus. So prophecies are, are messages or words that God gave people referred to as prophets to share with the world. And there are uh, biblical scholars estimate uh, something like 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled just think about that for a second. We hear numbers like that and it's like, wow. 300 specific statements about who Jesus would be, where he would be, when he would be. Jesus fulfilled them all. So what we're going to do is we're going to read all 300 of them uh, over the next 12 or so hours. I hope you didn't have anything going on. I'm going to read three of them for you. And just, again, are, are God's promises trustworthy and true? Okay? Uh, so let, let's look at this first one. It comes from about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth as God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. The prophecy comes from Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, uh, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Micah, 700 years before Jesus, says, out of Bethlehem is one who comes from old. Jesus has existed with God as the second member of the Trinity before all things, through whom him all things are created. Now let's look at the fulfillment. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. 700 years before Jesus had said, hey, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, we see Jesus born in Bethlehem. Amazing. Just, again, allow that to sink in for a minute, just the wonder of the way in which God works. Second prophecy, we'll, we'll go to Zechariah 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, it seems good for you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them down into the house of the Lord to the potter. Judas in the New Testament, one of the, there's multiple disciples named Judas, but the one who betrays Jesus, after he has betrayed Jesus, he is just wrecked with guilt and remorse. And it says this in Matthew 27, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. 
So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. They went away and, and then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Hundreds of years. You can't orchestrate that. Not, I mean, you can't just sort of, ah, let's piece that together. Like historical events, verified and proven from multiple sources, speaking of the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that were given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. We'll read one more, and then we only have 297 to go. Psalm 22, it says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. For dogs encompass me, verse 16. A company of evildoers evil encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Over 500 years before the crucifixion of our Christ, the Messiah. Matthew 27, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 46b, my God, my God, says Jesus, why have you forsaken me? Again, asking this question, are the promises of God true? Yes. They are absolutely true. And that means we can cling to them and Count on them, rely upon them, build our lives upon the promises of God found, revealed, and manifest to us in the person of Jesus. I want to show you a picture that is mind-blowing. You maybe have seen this on social media, it's somewhat popular. Um, this is over 67,000 lines. And what this represents is, the number, is, is cross-references in the Bible meaning where the Bible references itself. And so if you find one green line, if it were a higher resolution, we could zoom in and find one line, and we could trace how in Revelation 20 it goes all the way back to wherever. And why is that important? It's important because God is telling one cohesive, beautiful, intricate, detailed story of redemption. And it all fits together seamlessly perfectly to where you can have over 67,000 cross-references where the Bible is proving itself to be true. Again, don't just be like, wow, that's cool. But just like, it's amazing. What is it, why, why do we care? <laughs> because it means what God says is true. And it means that when God says something, it's not us, up to us to decide whether or not it's true. It's up to us to obey and to respond. God's word is true and it is faithful. And so when God says, when Jesus says, who is God in the flesh, I will be with you, the promise is certain. He will be. And so then when we go through difficult things in our lives, whether it be dep depression, anxiety, illness, pain, difficult relationships, whatever it may be, addiction, and we ask ourselves, God, are you really with me? Yes. Why don't I feel your presence? The reality is God hasn't gone anywhere. Oftentimes we have. 
And so what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is to really walk through, God, how do I then, if your promises are true, how do then I experience the power of your presence in my life? In the midst of my anxiety and my depression and my pain and my addiction and my brokenness and my relationships that I don't know what to do with, how do I experience you in the midst of my mess? That's the aim, and Lord, help us please see you and experience you. To do that, we're going to go to John chapter 14. So if you have your scriptures, you can go there. We'll have it on the screens as usual, uh, multiple other places. John chapter 14, Jesus, in this context, this is really Jesus' sort of last um, instruction to his disciples. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. We see this thing called the Last Supper, where Jesus really institutes communion, uh, what that looks like. Then we have Jesus teaching and giving very specific instruction. He's going to say, hey, I'm going to go away. And they're like, no, 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 don't you go anywhere. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to go away. But then he gives this instruction to them of, okay, well, what then do we do, Jesus? We, we rely on you. We are dependent upon you. What do we do? If you're not here, like, we're, we're in trouble. We're in serious trouble. And so I'm going to read verses 15 through 24 in John chapter 14. Uh, and, and then we're going to sort of work our way through things, asking and hopefully answer the question, answering the question, well, how do I experience Jesus in my everyday mess in my life? Beginning in verse 15, it says this, If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither Sees him, nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the words that are uh, the words that you hear is not my the word that you hear, excuse me, is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. There's a lot going on there. So I want to work through this. We're going to ask sort of three more questions uh, that we, we're going to sort of get through, all right, and working through this. But first, we're going to do that in a bit. First, I want to just remind us more of the promises that Jesus has given us. We, we sort of started with Matthew uh, 28, 20, that I, I am with you to the very end of the age, or I will be with you to the very end of the age. But there are a lot more promises uh, here that Jesus has given us. The first one we see in verse 16 regarding the presence of God. And again, these are true. This is a reality of you if you know who Jesus is. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The reality is the helper, when he says that, who he's referring to is the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity. The promise is that the Holy Spirit will be with us. The helper. Now think about how big of a deal that is. Think about it. I remember a situation where I felt like I really needed a helper. Uh, the, after our, our first uh, child was born, Theo, I remember being in the hospital and, and just exhausted because, you know, that labor, it took a lot out of me. And I was, <laughs> I was so tired. I was exhausted. And nurses are awesome. They crush it. But every five minutes, so you getting some rest? 
Doing okay? Like, well, I was, but anyway. And so constantly, in and out with their clipboards, you know, always. And, but they do a great job. And so I remember freaking out. They have this little table thing, and it probably has a technical name. It's got wheels on the bottom of it, and there's like this glass. I don't know. They put the baby in this table thing, and it's called something, but whatever. So I remember trying to get some sleep, and Theo would be in this table thing with the glass, it's a technical term, and I remember I would wake up, be like, ah, is he okay? And I'd run over to the table thing with the glass, and I'd be like, is he breathing? Like, Lord, please make him still be breathing. I was so nervous. Like, is he alive? Terrified. I'd be holding him, be like, am I killing him? I, you know, just so scared. And then they would, the nurses would swaddle him up and like just so, and they would do such a better swaddle than me. But I would get nervous because the blanket was a little bit over his mouth. And I'm like, look, can he breathe? And it's just so freaking out. About 48 hours later, they come in and they say, okay, guys, you're going home. It's like, what? What do you mean I'm going home? I don't have a license for this. I, don't, I have no training I haven't gotten the football hold down. I don't know how to hold him. I don't know what to do with my hands. I, I don't know anything. And they're like, you're going to take him home. It's going to be great. And I'm like, no, it's not going to be great. You don't understand. I'm not qualified. Being a parent's a big job. You need to keep these little humans alive, and you have no idea what you're doing. But they just sort of throw you into it and figure it out, I guess. Scary. It's a big job. I think of another big job that you and I, we have been given. We referenced Matthew 28 already in this thing called the Great Commission. For whatever reason, God's plan A for bringing dead sinners into life and then being reconciled to him in this thing that we were designed to be with, which is God, his plan to get people from spiritual life to, to spiritual death, excuse me, to spiritual life through faith in Jesus is to use us in the process. Why he chooses to use broken, messed up people like me and like all of us, sorry, a little bit of offense intended, like we're all broken, messed up sinners, and yet he chooses us to be a part of the process. God doesn't need us. If I'm emptying the dishwasher and I call over my five-year-old and say, hey, buddy, can you help me? I don't need him, but it's good for him. God doesn't need us to be a part of the process, but it is good for us to be a part of the process. In Seeing people ransomed and rescued from the dominion of darkness and being given new life. And here's the thing about the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples. That actually increases the level of difficulty if you think about it. He doesn't say, go and make people have confessions of faith. Professions of faith are very important. They are step one. But professions of faith are not discipleship. He does not say, go and make someone say one time that they believe in Jesus. We can gather a whole big old bunch of people and somebody really more skilled than me can go up and preach an incredible message and like a thousand, thousands of people can say, I believe in Jesus. Pray, I'm, I don't want to diminish that. And yet we can't leave people at the cross. Jesus said, make disciples. Do you know what discipleship is? Discipleship is the process of learning from Jesus, living like Jesus, and teaching others to learn from and live like Jesus. That's hard. It's hard for me to do. And yet, Jesus says, make disciple. He says to the church, make disciples. That's what we're doing, church. We're not just getting together for a holy huddle and not, not doing anything else. This is discipleship. So what's your process of discipleship? This is it. Serving is it. 
You reading your Bible, me reading my Bible, praying, being in groups. Life is discipleship. And we need each other as part of the process. Now, I'm a bit of a tangent here. It's really hard. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you a helper. And he's going to help you along the whole way. He's going to be with you. You have no idea what you're doing. I understand that. I'm going to give you the helper so that you are not alone in the process. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to work in you and work in other people. I'm going to do all of this, and I'm going to be with you. That's pretty exciting. At least I think it is. And not only is he going to be with us, but verse 17, you know him, for he dwells with you, referring to the Holy Spirit, and will be in you. It's not just a with, it is a within. There's a difference there. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within you through faith in Christ. You are a temple of the living God. That should change the way in which we live our lives because God dwells within us. If you read the overarching story of the scriptures, you'll see what a tremendous deal this is that God would dwell and exist within our broken, flawed, messed up hearts. And then in verse 20, he says this, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And so what that means is not only do we get the Holy Spirit, one member of the Trinity, what that means is that through faith in Christ, we are in Christ, Christ is in the Father, and we are then in, amidst, among the Trinity. God is for us. God is with us. God is within us. It's a promise. And we already saw God's promises are true. And it's amazing. He says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What does that mean? Manifest. What an interesting word. I did some digging in that, and it is used in all sorts of different ways all throughout the Bible. What does it mean to, that Jesus would manifest? It seems important, right? Jesus, you're going to manifest ourself, yourself to me? What does that mean? Well, in some places in the Scripture, manifest means to make visible. Right? You see that? Manifest is to make visible. Manifest in this particular instance means to make clear. What Jesus is saying, look, I am going to make myself clear to you. Amen. Here, just practically speaking, here's how this works out. You ever been reading the Bible and you read something and you're like, that sounds insane. Like you sound insane right now. And you're thoroughly confused on what in the world that means. It happens to me almost every week, which I probably shouldn't admit publicly. John 6, 53 says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in, in you. What? I mean, that's crazy. And when Jesus first said this, he had a huge crowd around him who were following him because they just wanted to eat uh, more bread that he produced and they wanted to see miracles. And he's like, no, 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 you're understanding the main point. You don't need the bread that perishes. You need me. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. And so Jesus making things clear to us is us being able to read the word and rightly understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying we need to physically consume his flesh and drink his blood, though we do that symbolically through communion. What Jesus is saying is we need to consume, in a sense, through faith, who he is. We need to take upon ourselves, spiritually speaking, his blood so that we are forgiven and that we do have eternal life and that we do not die, we do not perish, we live forever spiritually. That's what Jesus is saying there. But without the Spirit of God, and without Jesus manifesting himself, that is making himself clear, you will read that and you will say Christianity is about cannibalism, it is insane. It's not what it's about. Do you see that? 
That's what God does. He makes things clear to us so that we can understand who he is and we can follow him more faithfully. Now, I know I've sort of yelled a lot and gotten excited. And I maybe haven't answered the question, well, how do I do that, Paul? I haven't. How do I do that? Because isn't that the question? Just give me some instruction, would you? I get it. I feel you. Verse 22. The apostle Judas, different from the Judas that betrayed Jesus. I know it gets confusing. Judas is like one of us because he's like, okay, you say you're going to do all this. I'm confused. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Like, how, how Jesus, are you going to make your presence known to us and not other people? What does that look like? Now, Jesus gives this very succinct, and it's repeated uh, over and over again. He gives this answer, and I, this is like such a clear answer. So thank you, Jesus. But it's not at the same time. Uh, Jesus answered him, so Holy Spirit, help us. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commands. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Right, so Jesus, how are you going to do that? He said, if, you, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Okay, I'm following the logic. And then verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Okay? And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. How do I do this then? How does this work out? Right? How does this happen? Verse 16, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So there seems to be this tension between us obeying and following the commandments of God and Jesus revealing himself and who he is to us. And so then we ask this question of like, well, then it must be about works. Are you telling me, Paul, that, that what I have to do is perfectly obey the commandments of Jesus, and if I perfect, perfectly obey the commandments of Jesus, then I will experience the presence of Jesus when I'm depressed, when I'm anxious, when I'm hurting, when I don't know what to say, when I don't know what to do. Is that what you're saying? Yes and absolutely not. Is that helpful? Yes and no. Three points that we really need to understand. Number one, Jesus loved us before we ever loved him. We're going to go back to this slide. It's very clear. Multiple times, Jesus says this. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Over and over again, if you love me. And so then we think, okay, well then, if I love Jesus, I will keep his commandments, then I will feel his presence. So I need to muster up in myself more love for Jesus. Okay, I'm going to try, and I'm going to try. I still don't love Jesus. Has anybody ever felt like, I just don't really desire Jesus that much? I appreciate you guys seeing me and making me feel like I can be vulnerable. Nobody got that one either. I feel that sometimes. Jesus, I just don't really desire you that much today. I do. I don't really feel like reading today. I don't really feel like being in your word today. I don't... It's terrible, but it's just the truth. Does anybody else feel that? Like, I don't, I, don't really, I don't really want to, God. And yet, there's this connection between if you love me, you will obey my commandments, then I will be present with you. So how do we work in our heart a love and adoration and appreciation and awe, a worship, a glorying in, a desiring of Jesus? How do we do that? We can't work in ourselves to love Jesus. We first have to understand that Jesus first loved us. That's the primary point here. If you want to grow a love for Jesus and an understanding of who Jesus is, what you must do is look at the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross. That's what you have to do. Jesus loved us before we ever loved him. You say, oh, really? You sure? 
Romans 5, 8, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still dead in our sin, as Ephesians chapter 2 would say, dead, we were prisoners in the dominion of darkness. There was no spiritual heartbeat, no spiritual vision, no spiritual understanding of any kind. Dead people can't save themselves. Dead people must be brought to life by the one who can bring someone to life. Jesus is the only one who can bring someone spiritual life. He is the only one who can resurrect a soul from the dead. He is the only one that can give you spiritual sight and understanding to see who he is. I just don't know if I really love Jesus. Look at the cross because what you will see is Jesus saying, actually, I love you so much that I'm willing to endure the penalty that you deserve for your sin on your behalf. And what you then do is respond to the love that I've given you and that will well up inside of you a love and desire for me. The more I focus on the cross and what Christ has done and then the resurrection, because in the resurrection is life. When I understand I was dead, but now because Jesus has walked out of the grave, I am now alive, that should, by the Holy Spirit's power, well up in us an appreciation and awe and a reverence for who Jesus is. And so then in the text over and over again, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's not... If you obey my commandments, you will love me. It's not do everything I said and then you will love me. A love for Jesus must come before obedience to Jesus. If obedience and following the letter of the law comes without relationship and love, you will turn into a legalist and you will have a cold and bitter heart. I know that's a hard truth. We confuse these these two things all the time. And what we also say is, well, if I, if I obey all the commandments, then I must love Jesus. And again, we sort of get the cart before the horse. If you are sick, how do you get well? You take medicine. The medicine then makes you healthy. How do I follow Jesus' commandments? I love him. And as I love him, I will follow his commandments. Do you see the important distinction there? Now, again, we're asking, okay, well, you still haven't really told me how yet. Well, it sort of have, but not fully. Part one, we've got to love him. Part two, we've got to follow his commandments. And then I think we ask, well, what are his commandments? Golly, there's a lot of things to do here. Let me look at this. I think what we could do is we could say, okay, there, there, there are over a thousand commandments in the New Testament. It's pretty overwhelming. It really is. It, it, there's imperatives. Do this. I was reading an article by a, a biblical scholar that I really respect, a guy named John Piper. And he was writing on, on this topic in a similar way. And he, he said this, what are the commandments of Jesus? What are they? What are the commandments of Jesus? And then he said, look, when you read through the Gospel of John, you will see Jesus give a lot of commandments. You will. And maybe later today you can read through the Gospel of John. And he said, I'm just going to give you an overview. And I'm some stealing this directly from John Piper. So citation noted, okay? He says this, receive me. That's a command from Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 12. Follow me, John 1, 43. Get up, speaking to the crippled man in John 5, 8. Rise from the dead, Lazarus, John eleven forty three. Believe in the light, John 12, 36. I would add here, love one another, John 13. Believe in God, John 14, 1. Believe in me, John 14, 11. Abide in me, John 15, 4. Ask whatever you wish, John 15, 7. Abide in my love, John 15, 9. Receive the Holy Spirit, John 20, Verse 13, 
Abide, believe, receive. Abide, believe, get up. Follow me, pursue me. Abide, believe, receive. Know me as I have known you. Following Jesus' commandments are really a relationship with Jesus. How does that then work out? Love produces obedience that opens up the door to experience his presence. As I'm in my anxiety, I'm in my depression, and I'm like, I can't see, I don't know what to do. What is Jesus? What is his commandment? Jesus, I love you. Abide in me. Abide in me. Okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pour out my heart to Jesus. Here it is, Jesus. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to saturate myself in who you are and your promise, God, is I love you. I'm going to abide in you and your promises. I will feel your presence. I'm in you. You are in the Father. The Father, we're all one. The Holy Spirit is within me. I'm going to abide in you. I'm in a situation with my family. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Abide in me. Believe in me. Jesus, I believe that you can change my family. I believe that you can save my family. I trust you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give me the words to say I don't have them. Do you realize that this, all of this is, is supernatural? It is. This is supernatural stuff we're talking about. And we need to believe, like, God, you can give me the words when I don't have them. I'm sick, I'm scared. God, abide in me, believe in me, get up, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. Following the commandments of Jesus are living in relationship with who Jesus is. And it is this beautiful cycle. The more we follow him, believe and abide, actually we'll love him and then we'll obey him and then we'll experience him and we'll love him and we'll obey him and we'll experience him and it is beautiful. And so I'm way over time. I'm so sorry, LifePoint kids. What is going on in your life right now where you are not abiding in Christ, where you are not believing upon his name? There's something. What is it that you can say, God, I've been holding on to this so tightly and I just can't let it go. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's, well, I don't know what it is. We're just holding on so tight. I want to challenge you this morning. As we sing here in a second, Brad and Katie, you guys can come up. As we sing here in a second, as we're going to do, what is the thing in your heart, in your life, that you're just not letting go? I want you to give it to Jesus and say, I want you to abide in you and I just trust you. I'm just surrendering to you because I know you're good. I know your promises are true. So as we sing, if you just need a time of prayer and repentance, do that. If you need to just give things to Jesus, do that. We have a next step team who wants to pray with you. If you need to be prayed over, do that. I'm going to pray for us then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. Father, we love you and we trust you and we praise you and we, we thank you for your word that it is true. And, and God, would you work in us very specific next steps this morning? We've just been holding on to some things and we need to just abide. We need to believe. We need to surrender these things to you. If we are feeling like, I just don't desire you, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, would you help us see the wonder of the cross that we were dead? We were deserving of the full wrath of God against our sin. And would we just be in awe that through faith, we don't experience the wrath of God. We experience the love of God. We experience the family of God. We experience the presence of God. Would that overwhelm us? And would we love you and pursue you as you have loved and pursued us in response to what you've done? We need you. Holy Spirit, fill this place. We trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray.